Well, good morning. <clears throat> Do I look any different today than from last week? Based on all the prayers, I was hoping that a week of greater love and faithfulness and dedication and wisdom and knowledge and strength and endurance, I thought for sure I would look different with all those prayers that you guys, but we, I appreciate your, um, your love and your affection and your appreciation of the pastorate and the position, and you lavished me with love last week. And it's really awkward to be lavished like that. A lot of times I'm just kind of at a loss for words, but um, I want to express my deepest gratitude for your cards, your words of encouragement, and your gifts. Um, <clears throat> next week we will have our Thanksgiving share service. And if the Lord has laid on your heart to share something to God's glory and to edify his body, the saints, please let me know today or as soon as possible. Um, if, if you already know the answer and you're just resisting the Holy Spirit, just get it over with and tell me, yes, in obedience to the Lord, I would like to share something. So I uh, look forward to hearing from you in that. Well, we are in the book of 2 Corinthians, and not only are we in our very final chapter, the last chapter of this book, and not only are we in our final verses of the last chapter of this book, but we are in our final sermon of the entire book of 2 Corinthians. I have to say that I'm very grateful for this book. And it's been a pleasure to, to mine its theological truths. And based on what we've learned or what I've learned in this book, I, I don't think I will look at the other epistles the same way from the Apostle Paul because we've learned so much from him. And he has addressed real-life issues. That's what this letter is all about. These are real-life issues, personal issues people are struggling with and issues that the church was struggling with. And in this letter, like no other of Paul's epistles, he has shared his heart. He has shared his personal experiences. He shared his weaknesses, his underbelly. You know, he's supposed to be the great apostle, and yet we hear the times where he was dismayed. We hear about all the suffering and wondering where, where God is, knowing that God exists, but sometimes life gets so hard we, we question and we get confused. And Paul revealed all of that about himself, his, his self, his thought, his, his weaknesses, the source of his endurance. What does he look to when he gets really down? And even his fears. And I think and I hope that as we looked at the Apostle Paul sharing his heart, that at least in that way it served to disciple us. It served us to long to learn more from our Savior, Jesus Christ. I trust it has made us stronger as well as believers. Before we jump into the last few verses of our text today, there was a um, just a conglomerate of verses right in the heart of this book that I called the theme of this book. Now, that's my thinking as I studied it. It's not the Apostle Paul's, because this is just the Apostle addressing issues that popped up that needed to be addressed in people's lives in the church. But in about in the middle of the book, when he's talking about 
heavy issues and his own suffering and his own pursuit and pilgrimage of God, he says these words, and they're, it's what I adopted as my theme for this book, and they are so rich. I don't want to leave this book without at least reiterating the importance of these words. <clears throat> All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That was 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. And, and this is Paul, just like theology, just, just pours out of his mouth as he's thinking about life and how to encourage believers and where to point our minds and to, to help us understand what, why things happen the way they do. In the world, I like to think of this as the heart of the heart of God's redemptive plan. Is if you ever wondered, well, what does God do with His time? He has all these powers and all this wisdom and and these abilities. What does He do with His time? This is what God is doing in this world with His time. And He's above time, but He works in this. So if you ever wondered what's happening in the heavenly realms or what's happening here, how is God impacting Earth? The 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 emphasis. And the movement and the way he empowers his servants to do things is so that the lost would be reconciled, restored in their relationship with God through the son that he sent, Jesus Christ, so that our sins can be forgiven. God works diligently. The triune God works diligently, serves us diligently to that end. You know, and so we have received this message, but we're also reminded in this passage that not many people know about it. Scripture tells us not many people know about this message. So it's not only something that we receive for ourselves. It's something that we go and tell others about. And he is imploring. I implore you to be reconciled to God. And we also have that ministry, and so we are to implore, implore others to let them know what's going on in the world, what God is up to and how he would longs for and would love for us to repent of our sins and be restored in our relationship with him. Because our tendency and the reason that not many people know it, Corinthians tells us and as well as the rest of scripture, is that our minds just don't love God. We're sinners by nature and so our tendency is to focus on other things in life and make them our pursuits instead of God to choose this as our great hobby or this as our great career we are put in this earth to worship God to love God to serve God and when we do that we experience the greatest level of joy that we can in this broken world so we want to be reconciled to God Reconciliation is what mends. It's God's way of mending what we have broken. And it's all by grace. And it's all undeserved. So this is the truth that I think needs to pump through every Christian vein. 
It's the truth that needs to drive every Christian church. Because no matter what happens out in this world, this is the foundation of what's really happening. And because God is working on reconciling us and the world, those that are not yet reconciled, we know the end as well. He has given us the end, and it's, the end is the hope of glory in Jesus Christ. He's, he's given us the whole plan. He's such a good and gracious God. But I just wanted to reiterate this gospel truth because the Apostle Paul, when we look at all of his sufferings, this is what keeps him going and drives him. God's real. And God is on this earth in the form of his Holy Spirit that he gives us as a deposit when we acknowledge him as Christ. And I think when we lose sight of this gospel truth, then, then we're weak when we should be strong and we lose battles that we should have won because we allowed ourselves to get distracted about what life is all about. But when we sink our teeth in this, then no matter what happens out here, no matter what, how the wind blows the branches in the trees, the root of our existence and our identity is sure. And then we can't be shaken. God doesn't want us to be tossed to and fro with this idea and this pursuit and this fad that the world throws at us. He wants us to be firm in our foundation. And this is how we are firm in our foundation. So I implore you to be reconciled to God. And I implore all of us to engage in the ministry of reconciliation that the Lord has given us. And that's what we endeavor to do here at New Covenant Fellowship. So now I want to look at these final words. You know how it is when you're writing a letter. We do this a lot of times. It's, it's human nature, I think, because we know how to think and reason and communicate. And our tendency is to try to end things with what we really want people to be thinking about when we close our letters. Yeah, so we want kind of wrap them up with, here's, here's what I want to leave you with. And I think this is what the Apostle Paul does in our text in 2 Corinthians 13, 11 through 14. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul's words to this young church that has been under siege. They've, they've been under siege from their own personal, uh, the sins of the flesh. They've been under siege from the world and they've been under siege from the enemy, and this is what's on his heart. This is what he wants for them. And in a, in a sense, it wraps up the entire book because it touches on so many different things. So these are his concerns. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. So I don't have time to examine everything. We're not going to talk about the holy kiss and all that stuff in this this passage, and I can't take them all one by one, so I've just grouped some things together here, and that's the format, the format that I want to address these. The first thing I want to look at is 
the idea of rejoicing. I've taken license to not just encourage us to rejoice, but to rejoice in Christ. And I'm going to take the license also to, to make another group to be complete in Christ, and then thirdly, to agree with Christ. This is what Paul exhorts or longs for to happen, but I think understood is that it's all in Christ. And you'll see that as it's developed. What do we rejoice in? We don't just rejoice in... He's not telling us to rejoice just in anything. Obviously, it's understood that we are to rejoice in Christ. So let's look at that first. Rejoice in Christ. The word here for rejoice of all things is charis. Very familiar word in scripture, and it has to do with the state of joy, the state of well-being, a state of excitement or gladness. The interesting thing about this word is that by the time Paul uses it, it has become a common Christian greeting. It becomes in the early church a common Christian greeting, a way for believers to greet one another. Uh, the King James Version uses the, or translates it as all hail. And it's because when Jesus rose from the dead and he greets his disciples, he greets them with this word, charis, greetings. In Matthew 28, verse 9, And behold, Jesus met them and he said, Greetings. Now this is the resurrected Lord. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. So that's the actual word, charis. And it became the standard greeting. Jesus used it, but he used it in a context of his resurrection. Now, we greet one another. We have a cultural way of doing it. And our standard greetings would be hello and goodbye. And hello, uh, the, hello is kind of, a, no offense, but it's like a little bit of an empty word. It's not really rich. What does it even mean? Well, it has the idea of getting somebody's attention. So you could use, we, we use the word yo. Hey, yo, it's kind of like that, really. It's, it's like I'm trying to get your attention for some reason. Now, our goodbye I like better because at least you know we're saying, as you go, I'm wishing you good, right? Have a goodbye, have a good day, whatever. But there's some richness in that. And interestingly enough, we use the word hello. It has become common in our language because when the telephone was invented, they had, and it worked, you know, you pick it up, this new thing, this new, the dumb phone, I guess you'd call it these days, the landline, and what do you say, you know? So Alexander Graham Bell, I think the greeting of that day was ahoy, and he said, we should say ahoy, and Thomas Edison said, no, 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 hello, and so if history serves us correct, that's why hello that greeting has become common in our culture. So rejoice here in this passage is very much, it's a rich word. It's like the Hebrew word shalom. They use that in coming and going. It, it, it's a blessing. It's, it's, a, it's a, a wishing of well-being. Of course, understanding that any goodness comes from God. It's wishing God's goodness on each other. And it's a rich word. So this idea that Paul wants the, uh, this church to, 
to um, embody of rejoicing is very rich, and it has to do with rejoice because the Lord is risen. And they've just adopted it because Jesus used it. Rejoice because Christ is alive. And I think the beauty of that is because when we use that kind of greeting or even exhort one another to rejoice, it gives us a really good reason to rejoice, to be excited, to be well, to know that no matter what happens up here, all eventually and sovereignly and providentially is well after all. Joy is essential to the health of any individual, and it's joy is essential to the health of a church. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's one of the things that God diligently works in true believers. It's a true evidence of being saved. Joy just for all the grumpy pants out there. It's not based on a whimsical feeling. It's not necessarily based. The Christian joy is not based on uh, the good things that might happen in the world. And there are things, and it's okay to be excited about good things. But when it gets right down to it, the believer, no matter what the weather's like outside, no matter what kind of day we are having, we have tremendous reason to be excited on the inside of our being. And it's because Christ is risen. It's because Christ is alive. Rejoice, Christ is alive. Now, because Christ, the, the grave could not, the tomb could not hold Christ. That means that everything has changed about life. And we are on a trajectory that, that the king has put us on. And it means that in the end, everything will turn out the way God desires it. And for those that trust in him, for those that have been reconciled, it's just glory. It's bliss. It's it's a satisfying of the heart, soul, mind that we cannot experience in this life. So we have a tremendous reason. John MacArthur says, he says rejoice. You have nothing to be dour about. You have nothing to be defeated about. You have nothing to be morose about. You have nothing to be down in the mouth about. You ought to be characterized by joy, so rejoice. And again I say, rejoice. So the source, that's what's so important here. And this is what will give us our mileage in our Christian pilgrimage. It's the source of this joy. It is the risen Christ. Now here's how, kind of a practical example of how Jesus prepared his disciples for the sorrow that they will experience in this world, but then also followed by the joy. In John 16, 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep. And lament. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Take your joy from you. We live in a, this broken world likes to take everything they can from us. You know, you, you work hard for things, take your relationship, take your joy to rob, steal, maim, destroy. It's from the enemy. 
understandably, the disciples are really downcast. They're bummed because Jesus has basically said, I'm, uh, I'm not going to be here any longer. It's time for me to go. And look, they had, they had God incarnate. The best thing that ever happened to them in their lives was with them. They've never felt so safe. They've never felt so helpful, so secure, so joyful. And then he says, I have to leave? Like the best thing that's ever happened to me just came into my life and you're going to leave after I've seen what you can do and who you are? So understandably, they are, they're troubled, they're downcast. And he says, I, I get that and it's painful, I see that. But you have to understand it's a temporary sorrow. Because I come back in the form of the Holy Spirit, and the whole time I'm gone, I am preparing a place for you. So the the effects that I have, my presence that made such a difference in your life, though you won't have me physically, you will have the same in spirit. It's it's the same power that the kingdom will continue to be built because of the resurrection power of Christ. Christ. It's like what the prophets, you say in the Old Testament, joy comes in the morning. We have sorrow, but joy comes in the morning. And so this is the joy that he encouraged or the focus that he gave his disciples is that because of the resurrection and the presence of God through the Holy Spirit when he comes in the form of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and he affects our lives and impacts our lives, that's what our joy is based on. Not the circumstances. And how sad it is, he says, the world rejoices now. What a sad truth that there were those in the world that rejoiced at the death of Christ. His disciples are all torn up. They they put all their eggs in one basket. They found what they wanted. The world rejoiced at the death of Christ because finally they were rid of the thing that confronted them and, and... and caused awkwardness in their lives. It confronted the sin with truth. But Christians, on the other hand, always have a reason to rejoice. Rejoice. Christ is alive. That statement changes us from this day forth. It's kind of like I give the example of, um, let's just say you had a distant a distant relative that died and left you with billions, billions of dollars. And that would make any normal person pretty ecstatic, pretty excited. Because now you have access, and I know money doesn't solve all the problems, but now you have access and a solution to any material issue that might come your way. And it's, it's just so much that you can't even exhaust it. You just can't do it in your lifetime. It's, it's that much. And by, by knowing that you have that much, at least this area of my life is absolutely covered, period, it brings comfort, security, and joy. It was an undeserved gift. It just came our way. But it will cause our minds to race with creative, pleasant ideas of what we can do with this joyful, joyful gift. And no matter how bad we feel that day, no matter what the weather's like outside, we have the comfort of knowing we are in good financial standing. If you think about the resurrection of Christ, see, Christian joy bubbles up on the inside 
because we are in good spiritual standing. That the what Christ has given us, and this is more important than material needs in the end, because material needs can't satisfy anything, everything. Only Christ can satisfy our whole being the way He made us. And because He rose again, we can be satisfied like that. The purpose of God will be fulfilled in our lives. And it doesn't matter how good or bad I feel any given day. It doesn't matter what the weather's like or what the newspapers are saying. I am in the best possible spiritual standing I can be in with the God that created me because of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. So we have reason to rejoice. It changes our life. Like That doesn't mean we don't have worries, big worries. It doesn't mean that we don't have hurts and concerns. We're all trying to figure things out in our lives right now. I have, I have problems that need to be solved. And, but that doesn't change what Christ has done for us. It doesn't change the trajectory that he has put us on as well as this world. It cannot be topped. This greeting is good theology. Rejoice, Christ is risen. Good theology makes a difference. So this is something that we just want to stuff down into our hearts so deep. This truth, this knowledge that the things on the surface can't touch it and take it away from us. It's meant to be forever. So we have in these final verses a pervasive joy. It's essential. And secondly, a pervasive pervasive completeness or restoration. To be complete in Christ. The apostle says, aim for restoration, comfort one another. We've seen this word in a lot of different letters over these last several months. In Sunday school, we've seen it in this letter. Paul's already used it. And he said, it's your restoration that I'm praying for. And we know that this is a deep word. And it has to do with mending something that's broken. So that it can be whole and complete again. Because when something's broken, it's not working properly. It can't function the way it's supposed to function. So Paul's prayer and our, our aim is to mend anything that's broken in our lives, anything that's broken, displeasing to God in this church so that it can be restored and that we can function as God intends us to function. That's what we do in life. We restore things that are broken. We mend them. We sew them back together so that we can continue to use them. And, of course, the whole idea is that there are things in life that aren't right there are relationships that aren't right even with, with one another. Sometimes there are areas in our lives with our relationship with God where we haven't bowed the knee, we haven't repented, we haven't confessed. We're holding on to things stubbornly that we know we should give up. And Paul's praying for this church that they would be restored. It's, it's, it's a pastor's heart. It's my heart for you and it should be our heart for each other that we would be complete, we would be whole. We would be what God created us to be. You know, when it gets right down to it, as I think about these words, putting things back into their proper place is what we're going to do the rest of our lives as Christians, right? It's what we're going to do the rest of our lives. 
we're going to be putting things back into their proper place. Some of us more than others. Because the Christian life is hard and it's messy. And when you use tools and you put your work clothes on, they don't stay clean. So as we strive to get our values in the right place, as we strive to get our relationships in the right place, to say the right things, to think the right thoughts, as we strive to invest in the right things in life, we don't do it perfectly. And so sometimes we get off track and there's some brokenness. And that's, the, that's our life. That's our pilgrimage. That's our sanctification. And so for the rest of our lives on this earth, we will be mending things that get broken, things that are unsettled. So we need to to mend our ways. And the Apostle Paul pointed out many things in the Corinthian church that were out of sync. Some of their theology was out of sync. Their personal lives and relationships were out of sync. He says in his final words, aim, aim for restoration, aim for a wholeness and a completeness. Based on what? Based on God's word, based on God's righteousness. Interesting, interesting thing about life or even to know how to mend it is we have to know this book. Because sometimes there are things that are terribly off in our life and we don't even know it. We think everything is great. What do you mean something's wrong with me? We can have sicknesses and feel great. Sicknesses that can lead to death. So the way that we know when things are broken and the way that we know how to mend them is, of course, the gift of God's word. He tells us what life is supposed to be like, how we're to live it, and where it's going. So we have the gift We want to aim for this kind of restoration. We have the gift of God's written word. And we have the gift of the living son of God uh, in the flesh. That gives us a picture on what life is supposed to look like. What kind of decisions we are supposed to make. So we want to strive individually. And we want to strive as a church to conform to the image of Christ. To conform to the written words of scripture to correct the things in our lives that need to be addressed. And we'll spend our whole Christian lives gaining ground, maybe losing a little bit of ground, regaining some ground, but that should be our aim for restoration. And Paul tells us that we can help each other in this aim when he says comfort each other, comfort one another. Now the whole, the the, the word comfort in scripture and the word comfort that we have turned it into in our culture aren't exactly the same thing. When we think about comfort, you want to get in your jammies, you want to cuddle up in front of a warm fire with hot chocolate or something like that. Like we, we all have what scenarios that bring us the most comfort. That's not exactly what Paul is saying. He's not saying, look, comfort one another Share your extra cushions under your seat for long sermons so you don't get uncomfortable and start to hurt. It's not hospice. It's not that kind of comfort. It's the kind of comfort that encourages each other as we aim for restoration, as we aim to be whole and complete in Christ. And we're not on our own. So the word comfort has to do with encouraging each other on the way. 
And sometimes, in order to follow Christ, we might have to say something that is not comfortable at all for anybody. But it serves the purpose of keeping us whole and preventing us from being broken. The Spirit will help us in this task. The Holy Spirit is also a helper. The Holy Spirit God gave to us as an encourager to encourage us in the ways of the Lord, to encourage us to forsake the things of the world. We have that constant companion. So we want to comfort one another with the truths of the gospel. We want to do it respectfully. We want to do it humbly and mindfully and kindly. But that's the purpose for the body of Christ to come together. So we are in this together. We're not against each other. We're for each other. So in these final verses, we find the apostles' heart for a pervasive joy to be found among this church. And for a pervasive pervasive aim of, of being whole and complete in Christ. And then my last group is to agree to be like-minded, and I will add again, in Christ. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Why do I put my words in there? Uh, be like-minded or agree in Christ. It's because that's what's understood. We don't want to agree with each other in wrong thinking, right? We want to agree with each other in what's right. There has to be some disagreement if it's not right. The emphasis is to agree on the teaching of Holy Scripture. We just agree it's true because we know that it is. We agree that what is found in this book is our standard. It's our practice for life and holiness. We agree that what is found in this book is truth. It's divine truth, not man's truth. That's how we can come on board with each other and be like-minded with each other, is that we all acknowledge this and we agree on this. It's the word of God. It's the truth of God. Now, So the basis of our like-mindedness is Holy Scripture. That's not really what's taught today um, in our culture. And the kind of peace and unity that is taught today is that uh, the way is is to just acknowledge and accept any belief, any thought, any practice, because there's all beliefs, thoughts, values, standards are on equal footing. Not one is better than the other. And the way that we find peace and harmony is by just, oh, that's the way you want to live life? Okay. Oh, you want to believe in that? Okay. That's fine with me. Oh, that's fine with me. It's not working because it's not fine with the world because God created the world and there are consequences to wrong thinking. I don't know that I've, in my considerably short lifetime, if you think about history of the United States, I don't think I've ever seen so much turmoil, divisiveness, and aggressiveness and violence in our country. There's, where's the brotherhood? Where's the United States? Well, you have to all agree on something in order to be united. The Apostle Paul is saying, if you want to be a people united and a church united, this is what we have to agree on. If we don't agree on this, 
then you can expect chaos. You can expect anything other than the peace of God. And the God of love and the peace will be with you. See, what he means by, well, isn't God always with us? Yeah, he is. But when we live in rebellion and we fail to submit to his ways, we're not going to experience the joy of obedience. There are consequences to our decisions and our lifestyle. So we can't just all live our own way and not expect the rub to come. It will. And what Paul means by this is that when you submit to his holy word, you will live in the blessing of obedience. There is a blessing to obedience. And God's presence will be with us and manifest himself in that way. God keeps an eye on his churches. He keeps an eye on our progress. He keeps an eye on what we really are aiming for. And the way I know that is because in Revelation, he addresses the churches of the early church, the churches that we have read and studied many of the epistles here. And we've read about how they embraced the gospel and they grew and their lives were being changed. But over time, they began to lose their grip on the important truth of the gospel. And it affected other areas of their life. And God keeps an eye on our churches. And if we are not in obedience, it will not go with us. Just like in the Old Testament, when we serve the Lord, when you obey the commands, it will go well with you. Well, the opposite is true. So just for a little foretaste in Revelation 2, 4, and 5, God says, I have this against you. That you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lamp, your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There are consequences. God's always looking at us. He loves us. He cares for us. But he knows that if living in rebellion is not the way. And there will be discipline when we do that. Our like-mindedness and our unity is that we are, as the body of Christ, agreeing on what God has said and who God is. If we all came here with different views, different theologies, different religions, different perspectives on how a service should be run and what songs we should sing and the content of these songs, it's going to be a messy service. When Jesus came, he did not offer ten different faiths. He didn't preach five different worldviews. He didn't say, you can do it this way and you can believe this and have this. He came and he preached one truth because there's one God. Behind that one truth, there is one way to this God, and it's through Jesus Christ. And if we think we know God or we want to know God, we better know Jesus because he makes it clear That no man comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God. Ephesians 4. There's one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Can we agree on that? If we can agree on these things that Scripture says, then there is a momentum, a gospel momentum that we can have as we exalt God, edify the saints, and evangelize the lost. And I love how the Apostle Paul, as we, as we wind down, 
he, he, he invokes the Trinity, the triune God, in his final words. You don't see that very often in Scripture. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The love of God, the grace of Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. There's such sweetness in the Trinity. There's no dissension. There's no discord. There's no self-interest, jockeying for greatness. It's perfect peace, harmony, and like-mindedness. Because they, the God has the same thoughts. Three persons, one God. It's the same thought processes, the same goals. Now, what happens in our relationships and our marriages, if nothing else, is when there's tension. It's because somebody is not, we're no longer aiming in the right or the same direction. We're not thinking the same thoughts. I want my way, you want your way, and there's a rub, there's tension. Now, the way we do that is not, not pray that our spouse would change and, or try to manipulate them to change. You need to do this. We look at our lives according to the, the the footprint or the handprint of Scripture, and we conform our lives to that. We become like-minded with Christ. And as spouses become like-minded, we think like Christ, we start wanting to serve Him and do things, then we grow together. That's how we find our unity. So we're to be a church that is not merely united. That's not good enough. We have to be united in the gospel, united in the truths of Scripture that we hold so dear. And I would like to think, and I I see it, that we are united in many, many ways. We are blessed in this church to have the peace of Christ, to have people that love God's word, that sink themselves, that aim to know God and his ways, and then to to do the best we can, of course, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to walk in those ways. So there's harmony here, and it's by God's grace. The, the things that the Apostle Paul longs for any church, we want to long for, but also thank God that we have these things in some form or level, that by His grace, He is working these things in us. This kingdom outpost, it would be a refuge from the weariness and the darkness and the brokenness that's out in the world, we can come in here and say, yes, God is it. Yes, God is real. God is true. He's changed my life. He's taken me out of the realm of darkness and he's put me in the realm of light and I feel the warmth of it and we can feel it together as we praise him and set our minds on gospel truths. This has been a glorious book, a glorious study. And I just want to end the whole book by one more time reading these final words. I leave them for us all. Finally, brothers, finally, sisters, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. May God bless the preaching of his word.